This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Saddle hunting for me has been a complete, and I hate even saying the word, uh, game changer for how I how I like to hunt. If you've been thinking about getting into a saddle, now is the exact perfect time to do it. You have the entire spring and summer to kind of dangle in the backyard and get prepared for the upcoming season, be able to practice all your shots, getting in and out of the tree, experiment with your different climbing options that you have uh, to lighten your load and be more mobile. If you're interested in getting hooked up and getting into a saddle, I would definitely be checking out Tethered. They have Two great saddles out. One is the new Phantom Saddle, which is killer. It has a bunch of new comfort features that are built into it, as well as a utility bridge to kind of help with lengthening and shortening the bridge to make sure you have the optimum comfort. And you can get the uh, the OG, as I like to refer to it, uh, that I've been doing my hunting out of the past couple of years, which is the, the Mantis Saddle. I might also recommend the Predator platform, especially if you're transitioning from a tree stand to a saddle. It gives, just gives you that little bit uh, sense of familiarity that you would have with a, a platform under your feet that you would have that would be similar to a uh, similar to a tree stand. And it made my transition a couple years ago really seamless from tree stand hunting to to saddle hunting. So if you're interested in checking out more about saddle hunting in general, I would head over to tetherednation.com. Check out all their products. They have some killer YouTube videos. You will thank me later. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 182. Today, we begin the Hunting Beast listener Q&A miniseries with Dan Enfold. You're not going to want to miss these, so stay tuned. up everyone happy wednesday to you hope you are doing well hope you are feeling fine on this wednesday morning slash afternoon of june i don't even know what day day it is what day this is going to go out june just seems to be seems to be flying by man uh, i was looking at the calendar and was kind of planning our family vacation and, and stuff like that and figuring you know where you know when we were going to plan to do that we're going to head down to my dad's at the carolinas for for i think about a week um i was trying to figure out what the dates were and it seems like, man, every year the summers just seem to fly by quicker, and it seems like there's more and more stuff that gets jam-packed into them, and it always seems like no matter how hard I try to get ahead of my deer work and the things that I got going on, it's like I look at the calendar at the beginning of June or like even mid-June, like where we're sitting now, and I look at it, and I'm like, man, I just do, do not have the time to get everything done I need to get done. 
Um, but needless to say, we push ahead anyway. Everything seems to get done by the time hunting season gets here anyway. So it's, you know, I'll, I'll figure out a way to make it make it work. But uh, we're going to keep the upfront of this uh, kind of short. Just a couple quick updates for you guys before we jump into the uh, into the uh, the podcast itself. So this past weekend, I've got all the cameras out uh, that I'm that I was planning to put out at least for this this time of year. Um, I hit a couple of the places I scouted this past winter with Greg. Uh, put up a cell camera um, and killer started having you know some velvet actors, if you will, um, showing up on camera last night. Even after because I'm recording this Sunday morning, um, as I was sitting outside by the fire, my phone started going off and there were some velvet bucks that were showing up on camera on the cell camera already. One looks to be a decent buck. Uh, I'm not going to get too excited yet. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot can happen between now and then he, he has a lot of potential though, just from what I see in terms of what he's sporting. And uh, as far as headgear goes, a um, lot can change though, as the, as we get closer to the fall and, you know, bucks start to shift whenever the velvet comes off and, and so forth. So yesterday, I think I put out six cameras across four different parcels. So it was an all-day affair. Um, lost one GoPro. It was on the back of the truck, and I drove down the road, and it fell off. Luckily, I, dr- I realized it once I got to the next parcel, turned around, and it was laying in the middle of the road. The uh, the, the microphone on it did not make it. Um, I think it got ran over, but the camera seems to be working okay, so that, so that was good. Uh, so put out six different cameras. Um, took me a little longer than I would liked uh, would have liked, but uh, I had to do a little bit of looking around. Most of these places, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, are places that I've not hunted hunted before. I did a, you know some scouting this past winter through them, and that was really it. And so, of course, it looks a lot different right now. Um, obviously, with all the with all the green and stuff like that. And so, you know, trying to reevaluate, you know, where I'm going to place cameras because a lot of what I was seeing whenever I was scouting in the winter was, you know, predominantly looking at rubs and scrapes and stuff like that, and you would see some trails here and there, um, but they weren't super, super obvious, I guess uh, might be the right way to put it. Now with the green up and stuff like that, I can get a better sense of, you know, I kind of, my plan was to really to kind of head to those primary areas where I had looked at. So like if there was a good scrape somewhere, I would kind of walk to that spot and be like, well, why is there a scrape here? Is this like along a main travel corridor or like, what's it look like when it starts to green up? Because, you know, our season comes in in September. And so if it's a heavy travel path or trail, you know, it could be a player for the earlier part of the year. If it's not, and it just happened to be a scrape that, you know, a primary or a community scrape that popped up along the edge of, you know, um, say a clear cut or something like that, you know, it may not be much of a player until we get into that mid October kind of, uh, mid October kind of time frame. So that'll be, um, so that's what I kind of had to assess yesterday. I was going through, which is why it took me a little longer. There were a few spots where I knew exactly where I wanted to put the cameras. There's one spot that I'm super stoked about. It's where I have one of the cell cameras. Um, I think that spot's just going to be really dynamite. I talked about it before the mountaintop swamp. That's where I have some, some velvet actors showing up already. Um, and it's just, you know, there's a lot of sign in there even still. Um, just it's, it's all tracked up. You know, I didn't see any big tracks, but it was kind of hard to tell because there were so many. Um, so you didn't get a, like a real clean look at, at, at any one of them. And where I ended up putting the camera isn't far from where I think I'd probably set up an ambush point. And it's probably in that particular area, it's going to be from the ground. Um, there are no trees uh, to get into in, in, in that spot. That's at least it's going to give you an opportunity and it's on public. So you can't go, you know, cutting a bunch of limbs. There are a handful of trees that aren't too far off from that particular area. That would be nice to get into, but I can't do a bunch of, you know, I can't do a bunch of trimming and stuff like that. And that's what would have to happen in this, in this particular spot to just even get a window, uh, for a shot opportunity. So that's going to be specifically a ground hunt. The other area in that mountaintop swamp area that Greg and I went through, I know we talked about this long kind of rut, you know, corridor and, and rub line. And whenever he and I scouted it, you know, once we hit at the, what we kind of deemed the end of the, the trail, so to speak, we shot straight up over the top of the mountain to head to the next cut um, because we basically found like we found the lone oak that was dropping acorns in that kind of clear cut area and thought that, Hey, this is a good spot to stop. They're probably congregating here. This is where all the sign led us. And then let's head to the next cut. Well, when I, I walked in, there was a different way to access it. I couldn't access it or I could access it from where we had parked previously, but that was going to be the worst access and the longest hike in. So I ended up parking in an area where I had a little bit better access quicker to get in and also, you know, not damaging any, um, any deer trails or any, any potential deer movement, you know, the way I went in yesterday, it was kind of a trial run to see how I would get in. 
and I found a hammer rub below it, you know, below that, uh, um, that below that kind of rut funnel, you know, rut corridor, whatever you want to call it, that, that, that particular clear cut, it was a really good rub from last year. Um, so that, you know, I was, uh, I was excited about that. And then as I kind of started making my way into it, you know, I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to get in to hang that camera. And then all of a sudden, like I just kind of started seeing how the deer were using the, the terrain and cause there's a lot of like bouldery kind of, it's like boulder field type of mountain stuff, you know? So it's like, you'll get some decent, like hardwood kind of normal ground that you're walking on. And then all of a sudden, like just these huge rocks and you're just walking on top of rocks. And then all of a sudden it'll kind of open up again. And once I started getting close, I could kind of see how they were kind of angling down off the mountain and where their trail was at and how they were kind of moving in and out of this clear cut. And there's a definitive opening uh, as to how they're getting in. And there's, some rocks and stuff and just some vegetation that kind of pinches them down into one point and it's near where that food is. So it's not far. I mean, it's maybe 30 yards from where that food's at. I mean, it's not like I would have a shot to it or anything like that, but I'm in close proximity to it, you know, outside in, in this particular little pinch. And so that's actually where I ended up hanging the camera because I ended up bumping two solo deer, uh, one that was not far from that rub. And then the second one, actually, when I went in the cut, cause I actually walked in the cut to see if there was a place in there that maybe I wanted to hang the camera. And it's so grown up right now that you're not going to see anything. So I thought my best bet would be to hang a camera at that entrance. Cause it's clear that that's their way in and out. It's, you know, without a doubt it's tracked up, you know, that's for sure how they're, how they're moving in and out of that, that, that particular spot. And then maybe, you know, as the year goes on or as the season goes on and the foliage drops and stuff like that, and we get closer to, you know, prime scrape time or whatever, you know, then maybe I would hop in there, you know, really, really quickly and hang a camera in like a spot that might be kind of open and then back out. And that would be a cell camera and then let it sit and then and then just let it for the season. Um, Because I'd really I mean, they're super comfortable in there. That deer that I bumped, I mean, I probably got within 15 yards of it before it before it got up. So they're super comfortable in there and I don't want to do anything that's going to kind of, that's going to kind of booger them up. So that was really the day yesterday. Uh, got a lot done. And then, uh, today, this morning recording this, of course, uh, this jammer, uh, to get this thing out. Uh, but as soon as I'm done with this, I'm actually going to grab the kayak. There's one more water access camera I want to put up in this kind of swampy area. It's another place Greg and I scouted this year. There's a couple lone trees out in the middle of this kind of body of water, um, that I want to check out and see if there are any potential buck beds on it. And then there, uh, there's the edge of this particular piece of water. There's, there was some hammer sign around it uh, this winter when we scouted. And so I want to place a camera at, at minimum on the edge of that. So have a little bit of scouting to do uh, today slash camera hanging. It should be a quick in and out. And then in fact, I might actually do a little climbing with my saddle. I've been shooting for like the past week out of the new phantom saddle in my backyard. I kind of want to take it and get it to height. Um, you know, you've heard me sing the praises of man of, uh, of, of tethered stuff in the past. Um, if you're thinking of getting a saddle, I highly recommend that you, you check out the phantom. And if you're concerned about comfort, definitely, you know, wrap your rear end or wrap one of those things around your rear end. Um, because I, I will not, uh, blow smoke here when I, I say that I had my saddle pretty well dialed in after hunting in it for a year and a half, uh, the manis. And there was no comparison when I jumped into the phantom, it was complete comfort immediately and it just that the the comfort channels just kind of happen to go right where they're supposed to go at least for at least for me um and it was it was a noticeable difference immediately so check them out at tethered uh, tetherednation.com if you're interested in, in in checking out their new phantom saddle so with today's show let's get right to it so i'm super stoked to do this series um i've been kind of we've been a little <clears throat> how do i say it a little light on the DIY report mini series uh, sessions only because I've been trying to think about what's the next series and the next session that I, that I want to do. And I had this idea for a while that I wanted to do something related to beast tactics and with either, you know, multiple hunting beasts or maybe the beast himself. And so I was, I had an idea. I, I, I uh, you know, gave Dan a call and we talked about it and, uh, and Dan was like, you know what? He's like, you know what I really like doing? I like doing those, you know, listener Q and A's because he's like, you know, a lot of times we'll get questions at either one that we gloss over. Cause maybe it's something that we inherently know, or it's maybe it's not, it's something that we just haven't thought about in a while. And he's like, and I, I don't get a lot of time to necessarily do those. And there's, you know, and it also keeps from kind of 
him being asked the same questions that he gets asked all the time um, is, you know, is letting it open it up to the, to the public and, and, and let you guys ask questions. So what we did was throughout, you know, some topics, right? So every week I kind of th- launch out a topic and then ask for listener Q and a questions and you guys have been killing it, you know, writing in, uh, writing in questions uh, for, for Dan and I to answer. And then what we do is we select one person who has submitted a question and we uh, invite them onto the show. And so today is the first uh, installment of this series. It's the Hunting Beast Listener Q&A mini-series. Um, we have our buddy Matt Schneider on from Wisconsin. He's the, he's the lucky winner uh, to join us. And today's topic is wind and thermals. So that's pretty much, you know, we'll, we'll dabble in some other areas as wind and thermals are related to a lot of what we do in, in, in the whitetail woods, of course. Um, but primarily, we're going to be answering questions and discussing, uh, discussing wind and thermals. These sessions do uh, get a little bit lengthy, so I'm likely going to cut them up into, you know, two sessions for wind and thermals. I think the next one we have coming out is uh, reading maps and topo, and that'll likely be cut up into two sections. We're certainly going to have one on bed hunting, uh, which will be which will be uh, which will be coming up. So we're in the process of re- of recording these. Um, so just keep a lookout on my social pages and on the Hunting Beast uh, Facebook uh, f- uh, forum or members page because I put the questions out there uh, as or topics out there for questions too. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's session all about wind and thermals with the Hunting Beast himself, Mr. Dan Enfold. As always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today we've got a, uh, it's a, a so if folks out there have been listening for a while, you've seen me do these DIY report kind of mini series things that I, that I do where we take kind of, you know, maybe more complex topics, if you will, and try to break them down into, you know, more digestible ideas. And I've had uh, my buddy Dan N. fought on in the past to kind of do do just that uh, for a couple topics. And he and I got to talking, and I know I mentioned this on a previous podcast that kind of announced this series that when we got together and started talking about, you know, what would be a cool series to do together? And the one thing we came up with was like, Hey, you know, we get a lot of listener questions from all over the spectrum, you know, related to a bunch of different topics. It might be cool to answer a bunch of those. And Dan, I know gets a lot of these in general and, and, you know, with his busy schedule and making videos and making sticks and, you know, working on a stand and stuff like that leaves limited time for him to try to get to everything. So it just felt like the right opportunity to do a podcast that where we dedicated it to answering all your questions out there and had you kind of submit them on social media. So the cool part about today is that we have on Mr. Matt Schneider of Wisconsin joining us. He was the lucky Maybe winner, maybe unlucky winner. We'll see how today goes, and he'll decide if it was luck or, un- or unlucky. But how you doing, Matt? How are things? I'm doing good. Just enjoying the evening now after a long day of work and ready to talk hunting. Awesome, man. And Dan, how you doing, brother? You doing good? Hanging out, hanging in there in Wisconsin? I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Alive. I think in this day and age, saying that you're uh, above the permafrost is a good place to start these days, at least. Correct. That's right. So I think if there's no objections, man, we'll just go ahead and get to the nitty gritty and just kind of jump in. For those out there listening, this topic today is all about wind and and thermals. And we're going to go through these questions and have a little dialogue around them and and try to power through as many of them as we can. So the first one, it seems seems like the obvious place to start, Dan, and it might be the most elementary place to start. It's like, I guess, let's just explain to people what thermals are, because I think people get confused between what you know prevailing wind direction is what wind current is and what wind thermal is because you're or what thermals are because three things are really kind of happening at one time in a place to kind of give you your overall you know wind direction i guess you could say so if you wouldn't mind just kind of explain you know what a thermal is yeah um thermals and winds are, are two different things completely thermals are caused by um air heating up or cooling off and it Basically, um, warm air rises, cold air sinks, and both cause movement of of air currents. And in a lot of cases, that can override actual wind direction. And uh, in a lot of times, it's more predictable than, say, the actual wind. Right. So... So how do you, how do those things kind of interplay like with, with each other? Like, so give me, you know, I guess an example of like, you know, maybe a setup you've had in the past where it's like you had a wind direction, right. Of like, say North, for example. Right. Um, but whenever you're dropping milkweed, right. 
when you're in your when you're in your tree, your wind current is actually doing something different in the in the stand than what the prevailing wind direction is telling you. And then that thermal interacts with that as well at different points in the day, more you know, more strongly or more weakly, depending on what the heating process is. Like, what's your experience been when those three things kind of collide, and how can you kind of help or start to predict or understand what it's going to do before you actually get into that oh shit moment? I'm kind of screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a complicated question, but I'll, I'll give you an example that's a, that's a good one. And, and um, most hunters um, have heard about a deer's sixth sense. Mm-hmm. And what I say is that's usually a thermal cause in that. Mm-hmm. What you'll have is you get to stand like if you're in flat terrain. Mm-hmm. And, and a thermal is so light when you're in flatter terrain that you really don't even feel it. So what happens is when the wind's blowing, you feel the wind direction. You feel where it's blowing from and blowing to. But when it gets calm, then the thermal takes over in, in those flatter areas. And if you use milkweed, you'll see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that it gets everybody, whether you know it or not. Right. Uh, um, you know, there's, there's more things than just thermals to take into play. Like you said, the wind direction, what does the wind do when it hits obstacles? What kind of obstacles are we talking about? It gets pretty in depth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of times there isn't a solid answer. And as a matter of fact, I think, uh, if you, if you start Googling thermals, start looking them up. There is very, very little information about thermals out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the most you can find is like if you um, search glider airplane sites, they talk about thermals a lot because they ride them. So they study right. them a little more than other people. But nobody's really even talked about them much until into the uh, late 1980s. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, it, it's it's weird because... You know, I know I talked to you about the hunt I had in, in, in Iowa and that, that mature deer that I, I missed a couple of times and then, and then he, he ended up busting me, you know, or I had one opportunity I was drawn, I, I couldn't get drawn back and he was standing at this little rise, you know, I was sitting in this like, I wouldn't even call it a draw, Dan, it was just like a low spot, you know what I mean, that kind of started headed down into a draw once you kind of got further into the timber, but it created this little like mm-hmm. knob he was standing on. And I think the last time we talked, I had said like, you know, he stood there and he had that sixth sense and he was just stood at the lip of that thing and was licking his nose and wind checking and wind checking. And after he just kind of stepped away from me, like I went back and thought about it that night and, and until like this week when I started really thinking about thermals, you know, I had kind of thought the whole time I was like, well, he was just waiting for the wind to kick up there by like, just like getting like a, you know, a wind shift or something like that, just like a slight shift to where he could get a sense. Mm -hmm. But then what it makes me think of is like that little low spot, he was waiting, like naturally my, my scent was going to pull into that area most likely. And it was still yeah. midday. So he was probably still standing there waiting to catch just like a little thermal drift up over that lip. And then he knew he could scent check that area that way. So it probably wasn't the wind as much as it was probably the thermal that was beating me there. Cause he just knew something was up and he didn't see me. There was nothing. You know, look at it like this. I mean, this will probably resonate with a lot of your listeners is if you've ever seen deer come into an open field, Mm-hmm. and there's like a low spot in that field, how often does that big buck come right into that lowest spot in the evening? A mature one almost all the time, yeah. Yeah, that's because all the way around that field, thermals are dropping in the evening when the sun ain't shining on the, on the ground anymore. Thermals are dropping to that lowest point. If you think about pouring water on the ground, that's what that air is doing. It's dropping down when it's cooling, hitting that ground and flowing straight down to the lowest point, just like water. If it was going over the terrain, mm-hmm. it'll go down ravines. It'll go down draws. It'll follow the train downward. So that buck, when it enter a dangerous area, they'll circle around down to that lowest point and come in and sit there. And I bet you that's what that buck you're talking about did. Yeah. Yeah. I guarantee it. How about you, Matt? Any, uh, any weird experiences with thermals or six senses that's kind of ringing a bell for you? Not off the top of my head. I know I never really paid attention to thermals like Dan was talking about. Nobody really started thinking about them until, what do you say, the 80s. And I always was taught to hunt prevailing winds and think about the way the wind is going to blow. But I know last year when I was in a spot after listening to some of Dan's stuff, how the, the wind was coming out of the west off the top of the hill. But if you dropped milkweed at the bottom of the hill, it was actually going right back up the hill. 
And I never would have thought about that until studying more into these thermals. Yeah. I haven't had anything real particular yet with the deer catching me on the thermals that I know of in the last two years when I've been paying attention to it. But Right. Yeah, it's like it, it made me think about that hunt this past year after we started I started thinking more about thermals and I was like, you know what, that's probably what happened. And then, you know, Dan, I know you and I talked about this, but you know, I think the past two bucks I've killed out of state were um in part due to thermal tunnels. Because they were on this on they were on the leeward side of uh of ridges both times. Um, you know, and it was in hindsight that I recognized that with the one in Ohio and then this year it was more I knew that that was kind of what was happening. The first time was kind of dumb luck <laughs> we'll say but, yeah. but uh but in hindsight i kind of knew you know uh i knew why you know now when i think back on it why that deer why all i was seeing all those bucks in that particular area um so it you know it made sense so i think you know we covered what thermals are i think we can move on to the next one i think this you know this one's kind of interesting because this is more like tactical and, and strategic i think so th- this person wrote in and said you know do you set up for the thermal condition during setup or for the thermal switch around sunset. So are you, you know, is your initial setup for the, what is happening currently when you get there or is your initial setup anticipating what's going to happen as the thermals start to change throughout the day? I'm anticipating what's going to happen. I'm thinking about when that deer I'm expecting to kill is going to come through, where he's going to come through and what the wind and the thermals are going to do. And I'm, I'm picking my tree based on that. And that's a big part of being mobile mm-hmm. because things do different things on different days. I mean, or different time frames. you know, with, uh, so you could have a stand in a spot, but it ain't good for morning. It's just good for evening. You have to be across and in the morning or, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of factors in that, but, I, but to answer the question directly, yes, I'm, I'm anticipating what's going to happen when that deer's walking through. I've actually set up on the exact wrong when knowing when thermals kick in, they're going to be in my favor. And that's when I'm expecting to see the deer. Yeah. You know, I, I would agree with you where, and this, this in all honesty, you know, and, and again, I think you and I've talked about this just separately I mean, maybe even in text, but you know, that's been like the epiphany for me probably this year where it's like, you know, it's taken me several years of failing at this, of like trying to play the wind the right way and trying to take in thermals into consideration and stuff like that. And the last setup I had this year to kill that one deer, um, I didn't even hunt it you know, till mid afternoon because the wind was completely wrong for me in that situation. And I knew once it got toward evening and the thermal started dropping that I could hunt partially that wrong wind because that thermal was going to help me a little bit. And then I was, it was, the wind was actually going to switch like throughout the day and be just right, just almost wrong for me and just almost perfect for the deer. And then the thermals were also going to kind of keep that honest as well. And so that was kind of like the mindset kind of going into it. And so for that, you know, I actually, to your point, I stayed out of it until I knew I was going to be relatively in a good position. And then I went in and set up knowing where I thought the deer was going to come through. And that's, and that's what happened. Um, I will say I've set up and anticipated that a few different times and didn't get what I thought I was going to get, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and then end up getting busted or whatever, whatever the case is, Matt, how about you, man? Like, are you, when you're walking into a place, are you kind of thinking about these things? You know, are you thinking about thermals and how it might help you or hurt you like during a certain portion of the day and kind of, you know, tweaking your setup based on that? Yeah, I'm, I have a tendency to be dropping milkweed as I go in. I, I hunt mobile like Dan's talking about that. I very rarely hunt the same tree. Um, so I'm, I'm checking thermals as I go in and if I see something, odd with the thermals i'll try to adjust where i'm sitting based on that Mm -hmm. the buck that i shot last year i actually set up in the morning knowing that the thermals would be rising with a slight off wind like you said it's not the greatest wind for me but with the thermals picking up i knew that they were going to be picking up soon enough to get over the bedding area that he was hopefully coming out of and that it actually led to success last year. He came in right where I expected him to and never picked up my thermals, even though the wind was almost blowing directly at him. Right. Nice. Yeah. I think that's the one thing, man, to me, it's like the hardest part of, of bow hunting specifically has been being able to play the wind the right way. And then the next level, it's like, I almost call it like 3d chess where it's like, you're now working with things that like, you know, 
you don't have an app that tells you what it's doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it's like you can look at an app and say like, well, this is my wind direction, right? And and you can say, okay, great, I know kind of what might happen in this area, and then but you can't. You just have to go to a place and kind of understand how the thermals are going to react in different places and whether, you know, it's is it going to be partially shaded? How long is that spot going to be shaded? How when is it going to get full sun? Is it, how close is it to water? Like, there's all those things that take into consideration, which to me is like when you start to master, and I'm nowhere near mastering winds and, and thermals, but the guys that I know who are really good at that, it's like they see a lot of deer frequently and and tag a lot of deer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this next one's kind of interesting, man, because everyone's always jonesing to hunt the cold front, right? And so I'm just curious because I wonder how consistent this is. But this, this fellow writes in and says, cold fronts, you know, is moving in in the morning, just as a scenario, and temps are falling throughout the day. You know, are the thermals, as the temps are falling, going to fall with it, you know, or are they still at some point going to rise because of the sun? Uh, it's my tendency that they rise, but... Uh they're not as strong. Right. Or maybe you have to wait a little. Yeah. Or maybe they can be overpowered a little bit by wind, but, uh, they're still rising. Right. The sun's shining down on that earth or, you know, um, heating up the the ground, the ground's still, um, warmer, uh, than that cold air. Not to, not to mention that cold air moving in Mm -hmm. is coming from someplace. Right. Right. It's getting pulled in by the warm air rising. That's what causes the cold front. Right. Right. And so, I, would, I mean, if you look at a bigger picture, like, uh, like if you get in the side of like, a, a large lake, like Lake Michigan or something, um, when, when, uh, that water's cold, you got a wind coming off of that lake for that. They can blow in as far as three miles right. because, uh, that cold air is pushing down and the, the warm air from the ground is pulling up and that's what brings that cold front in from the lake. So that cold front coming, coming in is actually because your ground is warm and air is rising. Okay. So let's stick on the, the, the topic of, of water and thermals. Cause I know a lot of, we had a, quite a few people write in and asking for how, you know, thermals react as, as we get close to water. You did, I guess <clears throat> you did a video at one point I watched where you were actually even sitting over a little, a little chunk of water. And I won't even go as far as to say it's a pond. It was more just like a water hole. And you were showing, mm-hmm. I, do you remember that video? And, and you were dropping milkweed uh, showing how like the thermal was oh, changing yeah. throughout the day. Yep. Like, so yep. I guess let's start first with like, just give me, you know, your perspective or, you know, two cents on how water react or water, yeah, how thermals react, whether it's a large body of water or a small body of water. So, Cause you just talked about a lake, right. But there's still those mm-hmm. smaller, like self-contained bodies of water, like a pond yep. or like a water hole or something like that. Now, now the first thing I'm going to say about that is, is water is probably the most unpredictable thing about thermals. Mm-hmm. Thermals are really easy to predict in hill country. But with water, they're a little less predictable because it has to do with the temperature of the water. Um, the video you're talking about, I was hunting over, um, I was hunting on a property that uh, had been used for hunting, and then somebody bought it who wasn't a hunter. Mm-hmm. And there was old water holes on it. And uh, the water hole that I was hunting over, my wind was blowing kind of just off, and it kind of started switching. It was blowing towards where I expected bedding to come from, but it was all from mapping because I'd never really been on the property before. Right. Um, but when I dropped milkweed, it would not go to that bedding area. But it started going over that uh, that water hole, dropped down to the center of it, and shoot straight up into the air. And uh, I actually had a buck. It was nowhere as close to a shooter, and it never came close enough to shoot. But walk out of that bedding area and walk completely straight downwind of me and never smell me because the wind wasn't going across the pond. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's part of that understanding. I mean, uh, guys just seem to know which direction the wind's going, and they don't really think about other factors. Um, but that's the big thing is is a lot of it had to do with how shallow that water was. It had dark mud underneath it. Mm-hmm. It had the sun bearing on it all day, so the water was bathtub warm. It was warmer than the air, mm-hmm. and it was the cool part of the evening when when you start to get the shivers a little because you're only wearing a t-shirt in the, in the summer evening, right? Right. So, so you might not get that same effect, you know, in maybe November as right. what I did in, in September when I videotaped that. Um, water is kind of strange like that. I mean, you get the swamp water. A lot of times swamp water is real hot from the sun burning down on the muck underneath it and rotting vegetation. And it gets warm mm-hmm. and that'll get a good pull to it. Um, but that pull might only go 
10, 15 feet on land. So a lot of times, uh, like I'm hunting a point or something, and the wind's a little iffy, I'll push myself right up against the water so that my water's my, my wind is kind of pulling over that water and rising mm-hmm. instead of lingering over the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, rivers are even harder, you know, um, because you, the temperatures vary so much in rivers, and a lot of it has to do with water speed. Right. Right. So, yeah, that was actually another question that someone had. It was just like rivers, but... You know, so let me ask let me ask this question first before we talk about because I, I want to ask you about river bottoms as well, just like the wind and the thermals and how that interplay works. But would it be fair to say like <clears throat> I, it, it totally makes sense to me? Like a shallow body of water is going to heat quickly, right, or more quickly than a deeper body body of mm-hmm. water. And of course, you know that b- body of water is going to hold heat, especially as as you're earlier in the season and, and it stays warmer longer, right? And then whenever you get later in the season, that body of water can then start to freeze or be getting close to freezing while your air temperature may be about even with the water, possibly, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you have another degree of like maybe you get a little thermal pool, but maybe not nearly nearly as much. But some of those body of water, bodies of water like you're talking about with rivers, like if they're flowing pretty quickly, like they it, even when it gets really cool, like it feels like it takes them a while to freeze up, even after you're at like freezing temps for a while, where like the air temp may consistently be like 29, but that water temp still may be 33 or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you're still getting that minimal. Is that kind of true? Is like, would you still get that minimal pull toward the water? Uh, you get, if the water's warmer, you do get a minimal pull. Okay. You get a lot of things that go on along um, rivers though. Um, a lot of times you have uh, openings around rivers and you're going to get swirls. Mm-hmm. You're going to get wind hitting the uh, wall of trees along the edge mm-hmm. and turning 90 degrees to follow the trees. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. And or swirling in there. Um, yeah, a lot of those factors will make more of a difference than the water temperature when you're talking a river. I have my hardest time um, predicting thermals around uh, moving water. I don't know why, but it, it, it's a little more, less predictable. Right. Um, a lot of times water in rivers and stuff is colder than the air. Mm-hmm. And cold, air, uh, cold pushes, so it pushes out, but I don't think it pushes very far. Right. You, you, know, you know, especially if the water's lower than what you are. Right. It's all right, because if the water's low and it's cold, um, the cold uh, sinks, warm rises, so it's not affecting you as much as, it, as if it was warm and pushing up. Right. You know, um, rivers are pretty unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> Stagnant water is a little more predictable. Right. I think there's another interesting aspect to it, too, because it made sense when you said, you know, you know, rivers, you know, will sometimes be colder. And it's like, well, it makes sense, especially if you're in an area you have like some type of like spring mountain runoff or melt runoff or something like that, where it's like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely going to be colder, you know, from from that. And if it's a spring, like for me, I don't have, you know, like melt runoff around here necessarily, but, it, you know, we, you know, I, I will hunt around a spring once in a while and that water stays cold all year round. Um, you know, so that's always kind of like a, you know, an interesting play as far as river bottoms and, and, and hunting and, and kind of work in the wind in those, like, you know, I know just bottoms in general are a tough to hunt and a pain to hunt because you're, it's going to be hard to get a, a consistent wind. And, you know, the thermals, as you'd mentioned, are un- unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like a cavern. It's kind of cut through an area too, like through a valley or whatever, you know what I mean? So you kind of have like that interesting, like elevation play a lot of times in those areas, you know, along, along rivers or, or, or deep streams. You're like, what are you typically looking for in those knowing that you're going to get unpredictability? If you know, you have a deer that's killable in that area, you know, what are your kind of mm-hmm. like go to or look for setups to know that you're going to have a, a funky wind? The biggest thing I had to learn about those tight little valleys, the tight little river bottoms, is that patience is your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping in there and, and hunting down low, everybody wants to do it. If you get down in those low areas, sign holds in that muddy terrain much better than it holds under hillsides that are more hard ground. Right. And you don't see the sign as much in the hills, and everybody wants to go down those bottoms. But you get all that swirling, you get all the thermals meeting down there that drop in the evenings, and that's going to definitely overpower any kind of thermal is coming off of that river. Right. You know, if you got dropping thermals coming off of hills. Um, when I was speaking about rivers before, I was specifically speaking about uh, wider valleys or mm-hmm. more flat land. Right. When, when you get into those tighter areas, uh, the thermals coming off of those hills around you are going to way overpower that river. 
And if they're all dropping down there and you got a wind over the top, your, your wind is going to be going every direction there is. Right. And, uh, when I was younger, I tried a lot to beat those because you want to get down there. You sit on the hillside, you watch that buck and you're just like every day he's in there and I, you know, I can't kill him. And you go in there and you make a move and then you blow it. Right. And then try killing them because you've slapped them on the butt and told them game on. Right. You know, but if you're patient and you look at how he comes in and out of that belly, you look for the weak point. So I'm constantly trying to find the weak point in the wind or the, the um, thermals. Um, where's the closest point where I can get away with killing them? Otherwise, I wait for if it's a long valley when that wind is blowing straight down the valley. Right. We're now the right direction where it's both. You got the thermals and the wind in your favor, and now you're not going to get that swirling. You're just going to get that flow straight down. Right. Right. Um, That then I'll get down in there and hunt it. And some of those valleys are like that. You can do that. And if they're enclosed all the way around, then you still get the swirling. Right. Now, in, in those setups like that, in those tight areas, or where, you know, are you looking for, is there a certain wind speed that you're looking for to kind of overcome, like, the, the swirl in, in, in general that you kind of look for? Well, it depends. I, I think if it was a little bit of an off wind where it's, uh, I think I can get away with it today, I'd rather have it be a little heavier wind. Right. Um, but if it's going the right direction, it's going the right direction. Right. You know, because... Uh, like I said before, the thermals will all go downhill. They'll follow that valley downhill. If you get the wind to blow downhill too, and you can get below that buck, he's not coming up to you. Right. Well, then you have an advantage. But if you try and get in there on any other wind or a valley that you know you need a real oddball wind in, um, it's really tough. And you're better off sitting on the sides, waiting for him to come in and out, and just trying to figure out where he's coming in and out or monitoring him from the outside. Yeah. It's, as you're talking about this, I had a buck a couple years ago that came in on me and he actually crossed the stream, a creek bottom I was hunting and I had my back toward the creek bottom and he came in across the stream and uh, he made it all the way across the stream until he hit dry ground. And as soon as he hit dry ground, like he knew something was up, you know what I mean? So I, I it's, it moves kind of quickly. So I don't know if it, I was beating him because a little bit of like the, the the stream was kind of pulling my scent down even like moving the thermal down along with it and then as soon as he hit dry ground he was like hey all right i got enough of what i need and he was out of there but it's just like that that area was so hard to hunt like it was like some days it was like i would see tons of deer right and if, and this was several years ago and so i i didn't really have an understanding of thermals i thought i was playing the wind correctly and then there would be other days where it's like everything should have been set up for me to just see a pile of deer and it was a ghost town and i just could never never figure it out it was one of those places that just continually beat me i never ever never did shoot a deer in that creek bottom ever um so i'm sure it probably had something to do with the thermals man but um matt you know do you have any uh any experiences there that you've kind of recognized or seen thermals you know whenever you're in river bottoms or you know creek bottoms or whatever close to water you have any any funny business that's happened to you yeah um where i hunted last year was actually a river bottom Uh, it's fairly flat though there isn't a whole lot of terrain it's not a any steep cut getting down to the water or anything but i did notice quite a bit of swirling like dan's talking about in that area that made it definitely difficult to try to set up on them i had to move around a few times to find the stand that i ended up finally killing out of but right i did have kind of a spin-off question on what dan was talking about on you're talking if the wind is blowing down into the valley leading to the river bottom is the time that you would try to hunt it. But say your primary wind has uh, is coming up the valley. I got a spot that I'm trying to figure out a little bit on. It's probably a 15-foot gully with a drainage creek coming into a river and the wind would typically be blowing up that drainage creek. How would you go about trying to set up on something like that? How would you play the wind for that? Well, I'd, I'd probably be waiting for the odd day that it blows down, or I'd be looking for how he comes in and out of there and getting an advantage on a, a hillside or hilltop or something. Um, I'd be looking around at his, you know, in the off season, I'd certainly be looking at the trails coming in and out of there. And, uh, I'd be finding the very first vulnerable tree. If that makes sense. Um, 
but I'd also be waiting for that day that the wind's on. Um, you know, my younger years when I was uh, real aggressive and real successful, I actually charted what winds to hunt what spots, and I'd go every day and look at <laughs> the winds because I wouldn't want to miss a day on a certain spot. Um, but uh, a lot of it's being patient. Um, everybody wants to run in there and, and get it done, and that's part of the reason you have to scout so many spots and look at so many areas. Um, so that you have uh, backup areas and backup times because uh, you have to be patient with certain animals. If if you get aggressive with them and they know they're being hunted, they get really hard to kill, especially mature animals. Okay. Now, Matt, do you have a sense of like you know? I'm just asking the question. Like, do you are you um do you know that you're close to to his bedding, or have you figured out roughly like where you think you know the, a bedding area he might be occupying? Yeah, I have a feeling I'm within probably a hundred yards of the bedding area. Um, I found a nice community scrape that has actually been hit this year. It's been hit this spring and they've been keeping it open and their main trail runs, excuse me, their main trail runs parallel to the actual river and they cross the drainage creek at a 90 degree angle coming off of a ridge down across the drainage and then follow the river bottom down. So it's been one that's kind of plaguing me on how to set up on it. If I need to get up on that hillside and try to get them before they get to the river bottom or what, but I'm afraid of pushing too tight to the bed. Cause I think they're betting up on that hillside too. Hmm. Well, if he's betting. Yeah. Sometimes if the hill's high enough, you can get below them and let the thermals drop down to the valley. It's just in the valley where you get the swirling. On the side hill, you'll actually get dropping. But, I mean, if you're right below him and he can see you set up or hear you, then, then you're screwed. Right, right. I was actually just going to say, Dan, like, is this a situation here where, like, you need to get in early, you know, and try to beat him back to bed and try to play, play you know, the, the thermal tunnel closer to the top of that ridge to where he's going to mm-hmm. use that to come to come back into bed? Now, the, the kick in the pants is that, he's probably going to end up trying to J hook into that. And like, you're gonna have to try to anticipate how he's going to do that. Like if there are any barriers or anything, that's going to keep him from going a certain way into that bed that he has to come in like a specific way. But that's the only thing I'm kind of thinking of. Like, what do you think, Dan? On hillsides, they tend to come in from down, downhill. Yeah. Downhill, downwind. Yeah. So Matt, it sounds like you got your work cut out for you, man. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I got a camera up in the area. I'm hoping it gives me a little bit of intel on how I can work with it come fall. So. Right. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. Gonna... Really pay attention to uh, wind directions on uh, when he's on camera. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm looking forward to a, a successful photo heading our way come like October, <laughs> November. So I'm going to keep you honest on that one. I want to see that. I want to see that buck when you lay him down, for sure. Sounds um, good. <laughs> So the next question. Do you think you can get below him, Matt? I I don't know if I can get, I could get below the bedding, but that would put me down right towards that drainage ditch. It's not a very big hillside for him to get up to where I believe they're bedding. Mm. It's, you're probably talking only 30, 40 yards from the drainage to the top of the hill. Oh, so it's a pretty tight area in there. Yeah. So you're already in it kind of up, up against it already. Like, right. Yeah. There's a reason he's there. I mean, I have lots of spots like that where you just scratch your head. How am I going to kill this thing? How am I going to kill this thing? But yeah, it's a lot of it has to do with patience and looking at how he's coming in and out of there. And, and if you monitor the cell cam or something and, and uh, monitor a little further back to where he's heading to and maybe put the camera where you can hunt. And when you start getting them, making it that far in daylight, it's time to move in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to work on that and try to adjust my camera a little bit as the summer progresses here to see how I can pinpoint it a little tighter. Yeah. Are you predominantly hunting this in the mat in the morning or this is evening set up or what's, what's the game plan been for, for that? This is actually a newer spot for me. This is the first time I'll try to get into that spot. I looked at it a little bit last year, but, didn't have enough intel to try to make a hunt out of it. Mm-hmm. So I would assume I'm probably going to hunt primarily evenings 
depending on when they're moving, if, if I'm seeing more movement for morning hunts, I'll obviously try to set it up for that. But right. primarily evenings is when I've been seeing movement. Right. Cause the only thing I was thinking was like, you know, is there, is there a destination food source that he, that you would think that they would be, or he would be moving toward at some point? This is obviously, you know, of course, you know, before rut kind of kicks in early season where you might be able to, you know, not get lucky, but set up on him knowing that he's going to leave in a certain direction, like on whatever the dominant trail out of that bedding area is and toward whatever primary food source there might be. It's possible. I know late in the season last year, I walked, probably a half a mile past where this stand would be and found a good section of acorns hmm. across just across the property line there's on the private land there's some good acorns other than that there's they got to go across the river to crop fields or hay fields hmm. so it's you possible know, um, they're going out the backside to the acorns early enough when they start dropping too right you know maybe uh Maybe uh, in pre-rut before he leaves that bed, um, in the morning, you could get him, um, if you got your wind to go down, you know, drop down with the thermals if it's calm. In the morning's really early like that. A lot of times at gray light, I mean, you ain't got no wind. And if you can mm-hmm. check the weather, no, you ain't got any wind. You can get just that thermal dropping straight downhill. Then you can probably get on the other side of that trail where he crosses the creek where it's narrowed down. And you could get a morning shot at him. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> that would be. I just a, think you got a better chance in that pre-rut time of like mid to late October. Right. Yeah. Awesome. That was a good Probably dissection. Going back in daylight. Yeah. That was a good. That was a good dissection. Actually, there's a couple spots I was thinking about too as you were uh, as you were going through your scenario, or uh, Matt. So I appreciate that because I think it might have just helped me with one of my setups this year. So <laughs> everyone, everyone yeah, you know what's kind of cool about that. What's kind of cool about that whole conversation is is when people are listening to that, that's really like how we dissect our spots. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times, like me and Mario will be talking about a buck and how we're going to kill him. We'll just sit down there and throw ideas at each other and and just eventually figure it out and be like, yeah, yeah, that's what we got to do. Yeah. You know? And, uh, sometimes it's not as easy as this is what you do in this situation. You know, sometimes it does take a little bit of, uh, of, uh, thought process and playing chess. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's it, man. Whenever you're, you know, when you're trying to, you know, go after mature deer, it's, you're playing chess, not checkers, you know, and it's, they, like you said, like they bed in certain places and they, and they travel certain places at certain times for certain reasons, you know, and it's not because they're taking chances, you know, um, which, you know, makes, I think the chase just that, that much more fun. Cause you got to beat them at their own game. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to get them. So it's um, not a coincidence that they're in those tough spots. <laughs> I know I found a bed this year whenever I was an Ohio scout and that I literally like, I crawled up in the bed, you know, and it was like looking and, and it's a low density area. And so there wasn't a lot of, low deer density area. So there's not a lot of sign around there, like big sign at least. And there's, we have like some world-class deer on camera. So I know there's big deer in there and the sign's really small. And I found this one bed and like, I got in it and it's right. It's, it's below this like cliff edge. And he walks up like the, the back side of it and hops into this bed off this little ledge. And I'm like, like how the hell would you hunt him here? And he's Dan, he's no more than 60 yards off a road. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm like, I have no clue. Like I was just looking at it. I got in the bed and I looked like how he could get out. And I'm like, man, he's on the leeward side. He's got it. I was like, and this thing is, just, I was like, if you try to approach him to hunt him anywhere from below him, I was like, he's got you. And if, and then right to your you know, left, his left, or we'll just call it the West. There's a, like a, a, a stream that runs through there. And so it's just like, I don't want to say it's a thermal hub necessarily, but it's just like, there's a couple like ridges that all kind of come together there before it heads out to the road. And I'm just looking around there going, like, if you set up over there and he starts heading toward you, toward you like, the wind's going to be so squirrely, he's going to pick you up before he ever cuts the corner around the edge of that ridge, you know, uh, like any of those benches around there. And it's just, yeah, I mean, he's bedded there for for a reason, you know, and I, I, I'm scratching my head, like, how I will hunt that this year, and I haven't quite figured out how to do it yet, so... But uh, we'll move on to the next question. This one, uh, this one's interesting, man, because, you know, we always talk about, you know, weather days and what weather days to hunt and stuff like that. And, you know, I know I typically like a little bit of rain. Like I don't, you know, a little bit of rain doesn't bother me. I typically like it. I can be a little bit more quiet and stuff like that. But this person 
wrote in and just said, you know, do thermals play differently on rainy days or are they impacted by the, the barometric pressure, whether it's high or low? So what's your, what's your experience been there, Dan? I don't know that they're impacted by barometric, but, Mm -hmm. um, rainy cloudy days they're impacted by, um, but if it's, you know, if it's light out, I believe that they're still affecting the ground, but the water can be cooling the ground too. Mm-hmm. So, so it's weird, but I do think you still get a rise during the rain. It's just not a very intense one. Right, right. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense because, I mean, you're kind of, you know, the water falling from the sky, of course, is going to be cool, right? It's like even if you've ever been out on like a hot day and it starts raining, like the water, like the rain feels cold, you know? And mm-hmm. so it just kind of makes sense that it's going to, at least, you know, the top layer of that ground is going to remain cold, um, which would, you know, you would think would affect the thermal. And at minimum, you would think that it would at least maybe not make it as strong or in the morning it might delay when it really starts kicking up, you know. Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of like snow cover. You get snow cover on the ground, it makes a, an effect on thermal rise too, but you still get a rise. Right. Now, with that, do you see a, is there a pretty significant delay in that? Like, as far as like, they just make stuff up. So, if like, if the sun comes up and say, like, typically, you know, I don't know, you're in. Yeah, it seems to be later. Yeah. It's later and not, not as intense. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So, this next one, I, I like this one because I, I hunt some, some hill country and this is asking some hill country stuff here. So, this, this fellow writes in and says, I'd uh, love to hear Dan's breakdown on the most common wind slash thermal conditions he sees in uh, hill country uh, terrain settings. So what is that most like, you know, uh, I guess, you know, a common thing that you see in terms of wind and thermal interplay in the hill country? Well, um, the thermals rise up the hills when the sun, sun hits the hills. Right. So when the shadow hits the hills, it starts to turn. There's a, you know, there's a cooling period where, you know, a period of time that it takes to cool. But then when they cool, they drop. So um, the one thing about hilly terrain is that the thermals in hilly terrain are extremely predictable. Mm-hmm. You can look at the terrain and say, this is what's going to happen, and it will. And 90, 90% of the time, probably 95% of the time, it will overpower any winds that are out there. Mm-hmm. So you, you always set up the thermals in hill country. Right. Um, they get a little tough because bucks tend to bet on leeward hillsides. Right. And they tend to, when they look for does, cruise leeward hillsides. So where they cruise and where they bet is where the two winds meet. Hmm. Thermal coming up the hill and the dominant wind coming over the hill. So um, to take advantage of that, you either have to hunt high enough that you get into the wind stream. Otherwise you get caught up in that swirl or Mm-hmm. Or you have to look for some sort of terrain break that gives you an advantage, like a, a draw on the side of the hill where you can go up that draw and then hunt at a pinpoint where they cross. And uh, a lot of times at those draws, they'll rise or lower and come out of that uh, thermal tunnel to get to a point where it's easier to cross the draw. Usually they come up to like the top of the draw right. and go around it. Yep. And that makes a good killing spot. Yeah. So you just mentioned the thermal tunnel there, and that's that's one thing that I kind of I touched on at the very beginning of the of the of the podcast that I've recognized that that's been something that helped me kill two different out of state deer on 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 public land, and it, it didn't dawn on me probably until you know just this past year exactly how to how to use it, how to play it, you know, and and stuff like that. And I'm not an expert at it, but I started to understand like how to put it into my bag of tricks and how to be able to you know use it to my advantage. Can you talk a little bit about how the thermal tunnel is created and then how deer ultimately are, are using it. Well, um, the, the, uh, thermals are rising and, and actually people think thermals rising on a hillside isn't that much, but it, it can be a, a, a wind that blows your hair back if the, if the hill's <laughs> deep enough. Right. Um, uh, to anybody that's hunted hills, they know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the wind direction is going to be on every hill is going to be going upward if the sun's shining on. Um, and then if you get a spot where the wind is blowing from the other way, so wind's blowing over the hill, but the, the thermals are blowing up the hill, there's going to be a point where they meet. And it's usually not at the very tip because the very tip's kind of rounded. It's right at the like, top fourth to top third usually. And that depends on the uh, steepness of the hill. If it's a more rounded hill, it might be lower and it might adjust a lot. Very steep hills like uh, 
some areas like Western Wisconsin, where they get really steep. Um, you have uh, uh, a, a gradual slope and then also sh- sharp, sharper drop off. Mm-hmm. And that thermal tunnel will be right at that sharper drop off. And the beds will be really easy to see. And the travel route will be really easy to see because it'll be locked into a position where those winds meet. Right. When you get into the more rounded hills, it's very hard to see the, ter- the uh, sign of the bed. It's very hard to see the trails because wind speed um, will, and the heat of the day will adjust exactly where that thermal is. And as it moves throughout the day, the bucks will move with it. But in the steeper terrain, they'll be locked into position. So it'll look like in steeper terrain that you're, that you're um, man, this is the greatest bedding area I've ever found. Right. And then if you get the same kind of bedding area in uh, rounded hills, you'll be like, well, this sucks. <laughs> this doesn't look like there's anything. Right, right. But you still got the same amount of deer bedding in both spots. It's just that one, they're not wearing spots into the ground. The other one, they are. Right. It's, it's kind of a weird phenomenon. Right. So is it, <clears throat> I guess, let me ask it this way. You know, is there, I guess, the most consistent thermals? Oh, I won't put words in your mouth. I'll ask you. You know, would you say that most consistent thermals you're going to get at that top one one third, or depending on how steep it is, could the thermal tunnel be at different positions within the within that you know with uh, different elevations depending on the the it can it can be at different positions. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, like I said, when you get into more rounded hills and not so steep, mm-hmm. it gets a, a lot harder to determine them, right. a lot harder to see it. The more steep it is, the more condensed it is, the easier it is to see, the easier it is to hunt. And if you get into steep terrain, um, it's easy to see because if you walk up the hill, you're going you're gonna to hit a couple major trails that follow that ridge line. Mm-hmm. And, that's where the, and that's where the thermal tunnel is. Right. And so would that still, would that hold true? Like, for example, if you're in, you know, just say, let's go back to like, whether it's river bottoms or streams or anything like that. If you had some type of consistent wind and you knew what the thermal, you know, somewhat knew what the thermal was going to do, would, will, could you find thermal tunnels or or do they exist in some of those other places just that aren't along, you know, ridge lines or, or, or what have you that you could potentially play? You know, I haven't seen it, but I've seen like thermal spots, like the lower area of a field Mm -hmm. or, um, where there's a, like say an opening in uh, um, in trees, right? Or the whole uh, thermal hub thing, right? Yeah, no, let's touch um, on thermal hub. I've seen, I've hub, seen stuff a... like that, but I I haven't seen like where you have whole ridge lines of a thermal tunnel, right. you know? Right. Yeah, because I remember one time you and I just talking about we were talking about thermals in general. And we talked about you know was it a thermal vacuum or a wind vacuum or something like that where it's like you have the thermals doing one thing and you've got your prevailing wind kind of ripping over top of like a set of trees and maybe you're sitting in like a the edge of a clear cut or something like that. And then the wind kind of rolls back on you because of like the, the thermal and the wind kind of, you know, mm-hmm. working with each other, creating this kind yeah. of vacuum effect or whatever. And right. Um, well, what happens, what you're talking about is like when, like say you're on a, um, even flatland now, say you're on a field edge where you're up against forest. Mm-hmm. If you hunt right on the edge of the field, if winds and most people would do that, when the wind's coming out of the forest over the fields so that the deer coming from the woods aren't smelling them. Right. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that wind going over those trees and especially if there's uh, leaf cover, will go over those trees whipping. And when it hits the uh, uh, dead space that's in front of you, mm-hmm. it's going to tumble down and, and roll. And then you'll get, uh, you'll get a, a pushback that goes back into the woods, especially when there's a gust. So you'll have occasional winds that uh, screw you up there. So in that case, you're probably a little better off getting into the woods a little ways right. instead of being right on the edge. Right. You get a little bit more consistency if you get back off of it a little bit. Right. And that's the big thing is hunting where the wind is more consistent, more reliable. Whether it's thermals, winds, or what, you want it to be consistent. Another thing about those edges is if you're hunting a, a, a tree line, you know, you know, the edge of a woods, mm-hmm. and that wind is blowing into that woods, you know, like say from the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's hitting at any kind of angle, it's going to, it's going to turn and follow that tree, or it's going to hit that, that, uh, that woods, like water splashing on those trees and tumble all over the place. Right. It's an obstacle that, uh, creates wind turbulence. Right. Wind doesn't just go through obstacles. It doesn't go through a house. It doesn't go through a rock or through a hill or a tree or anything else. And whenever it hits something like that, 
it's going to do something. Right. You know, think about high, high speed water hitting it. What's it going to do? It's not going to go straight through it or, or just stop when it hits it. It's got, it's got to force something. And a lot of people got to get that in their head to understand. And you kind of look at a wind direction and say, well, this, this is hitting that tree line at a 45. Which way is my wind? Is it going to shear off of those trees when it hits it? Right. Well, it's going to go back the other way. So I can still hunt deer coming from the, the opposite direction per se. Right. You know, um, you, you have to kind of, um, be able to look at the situation, think about the winds and think about what the thermals is going to do and, um, make a, make a, you know, decision rather than just put up a stand and look at just the wind direction. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, wind, it's, it, it acts a lot, a lot like water, you know, and, I, and I've heard people talk about, you know, guys who are also really good at fly fishing typically are good at understanding what the wind is going to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? If, mm-hmm. Like if there's a guy who's, you know, you know, is a, you know, a bow hunter or whatever, and is also an avid fly fisherman, they typically say that that, that guy probably has a pretty good understanding of what's happening with the wind. Cause he's, he's reading how the water's eddying around rocks and creating little pools and stuff like that, where it's just holding, Correct. holding food for the, you know, a trout or whatever the case is to come through and, and snatch it. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's really hard because it's the one it's the one thing that we can't see, you know, for deer. You know what I mean? That is the most vital thing that they use to, to survive. It's not visible for us, so it's hard for us to kind of grasp. But it's a, it's a big factor, though, because a lot of times it's just a matter of picking the right tree out of five or ten trees in a spot, whether you kill that deer or he smells you. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe there as well. I'll be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time... We'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.